Section 3 of The City of Din. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Chesley. The City of Din by Dan McKenzie. There is another of nature's sounds that I have sometimes cursed, that of the corn crake. But I am not at all sure that it is really and truly anathema. Walking home under the July moon through fields of ripening corn, it may mingle in your memory with some impossible she, who one far-off night leaned out of heaven's bars to hold her arms open to you, of all the dwellers on earth. Thus the corncrake, raucous and grating though it be, may be suffused with the atmosphere of youth, that far-gone irrevocable halation, and then, if not music in itself, it is at least the cause of music in others. On the other hand, the July night is thunderous, sultrily surprising, with the air breathless, motionless, thick. The sheet of linen upon your bed is weighing you down as if it were a sheet of lead. Like the eel in the pond, you surge in a vain leap for coolness upon the iron rail of the bed. You have eaten too much, or drunk too much, or smoked too much. It is one of those nights when whatever you have done has been too much. Over-satiety broods upon you nightmarishly. Groaning and panting, you struggle, while one after another there rise up in the darkness the stark figures of your sins, and what is worse of all your weaknesses, and what is worst of all of your blunders, whereat even now, years after the crime, you blush again at your stupidity, and sticky sweats bedew your forehead. At that furious and stifled moment, let the corncrake rattle across the night. You will register a climax. Wer nie die Kummerwollen nachte auf seinem Bette weinen saß, der kennt euch nicht, ihr himmlischen Mächte. That grating voice is the comment of the ultimate judge upon your deeds done in the flesh. No, in spite of its harshness, I dare not call the corncrake noisy. It is with no little trepidation that I begin my next section. What of the human child? On the threshold I am met by one of the chronic jokes of the alleged comic papers, the screaming midnight child and the tortured conscientious father. In real life it is the mother who is conscientious and tortured, the father, ever mindful, as Stevenson said, of conserving the health of an invaluable parent, grunts, turns on his other side, and falls asleep. As for mothers, the following newspaper cutting speaks for them more eloquently than I can. A verdict of murder against the mother of a nine-month-old child was returned at a Westminster inquest today. The father said that his wife had been run down lately, and the constant crying of the child had upset her a great deal, and got on both his and her nerves. A housekeeper in the temple said that she saw a woman carry a baby down the temple steps onto the embankment. Witness then saw her press the baby in her arms and jump into the river. It was stated that the body of the child was recovered off Charing Cross Pier some days later. The coroner said that the body of the mother was found in the river in another district, and the inquest on her would be held elsewhere. She seemed to have been driven off her head by the crying of the child, continued the coroner. A constant crying child is a terrible affliction, and I can quite understand it. Many years ago, I was in general practice in a mining town. 
The work was never ending and lay chiefly among little children, unfortunates with whom illness and painful illness was all too common. One autumn I treated myself for the first time in many years to a holiday, which I spent among the hills of Perthshire. In addition to the usual sweets of holiday time, there was, withal, a strange peace deep-rooted in my heart, and soothing with wholesome air the entire atmosphere of life and thought. The peace I was sensible of, its cause I never inquired after. But one day, in my holiday tramps along the highland roads, I passed a cottage whence proceeded the familiar wailing of a child in some bodily or mental threat. Then, in a flash, I realized the reason for my peace of mind. Experts such as mothers, nurses, and medical practitioners can generally tell you by the sound why a child is crying, whether hunger, pain, or temper. It is a curious fact that when the last-named complaint is chronic, the vocal cords of the infant's larynx may develop the equivalent of corns upon the misshod feet of adults. Screamer's nodes, they are called. Our earliest sign of independent life is a cry, and a good lusty cry it is. The first grasp of air is followed by a closure of the glottis through the narrow chink of which the air is forced out again, thus producing the cry. Meantime, such of the air as remains in the windpipe and bronchular tubes is compressed, and seeking an exit towards the spongy lung spaces, it aids in their inflation and expansion. Hence the satisfaction with which we hear this first assertion of a new individuality, and the pains we take, and give, to evoke it when it is absent or feeble. After this initial demonstration, the baby settles down to enjoy life quietly. The common belief among childless people that a baby often cries is pure ignorance. For although there are a few infantile pessimists who fill their world with lamentations, the vast majority of infants are good and only cry when they are hungry, angry, or pained, just as their elders do. For the rest, listen to the chuckling and gurgling of contented infants, the baby laughter, the first attempt at baby speech. Who is there who does not smile in sympathy at hearing those beautiful sounds? And what misanthrope dare call this heavenly music by any other name? Out of fairness to possible cavaliers, I have given the first place to what they might term nature's noises. I can remember no more of them in England at all events and even where they fall short of true music, they possess, as I have already hinted, other delightful qualities conferred upon them by association. Quote, Sounds do not always give us pleasure according to their sweetness and melody, nor do harsh sounds always displease. We are more apt to be captivated or disgusted with the associations which they promote than with the notes themselves. Thus the shrilling of a field cricket, though sharp and stridulous, yet marvelously delights some hearers, filling their minds with a train of summer ideas of everything that is rural, virtuous, and joyous. End quote. Come down a step into my little shop. Here is a goodly show of delights. What of the trees when the wind, that grand old harper, smites his thunder harp of pines? You cannot express that sound in words, but it has been expressed in music, in German music, Buchanan, speaking of the pines as a harp, an aeolian harp he means, not the twanging harp of terrace halls, would doubtless have agreed that the bowed strings in orchestra can render the wind among the trees as nothing else can, that rushing eerie sound with its sense of restrained power. 
but you ought to hear the sound itself. For that, go into the woods at night, as it is in the darkness that the mystery of the wind comes nearest to you. Whether it is whispering the secrets of fairyland, or hallooing the chase of the clouds, the inner meaning of that music poets have been seeking to tell since language first began, but they never can, and they never will, for it is ineffable. Then there is the thundering roll and crash of billows on the beach, the sounds of the sea. We are children of the sea foam, we English, though we cannot, alas, lay claim to the beauty of Aphrodite, for, to be frank, we are a stockish and an ugly race. But the sea is in our blood, and the salt winds are the breath of our nostrils. So, when the bullers of Buchan are thundering among our North Sea cliffs, our souls expand to join the white riders, and to plant with the Almighty himself their footsteps in the deep. Something like this is what the waves in Tempest send us with their spray. As to the gentle splash of those watery terraces in calm, what sweetness in repose can equal it? Smoothed are the furrows, suave and glassy the ripples, while the spacious polished levels reflect the calm of heaven itself, and give a foretaste of rest after struggle of peace after strife. Leaving now those deeper and grander tones of the voice of nature, we turn to its gentler beauties, and first and foremost come the songs of our birds. Was it true, the Grecian sings, birds were born the first of things, before the sun, before the wind, before the gods, before mankind? Airy, anti-mundane throng, witness their unworldly song. The late Harold Frederick, a too soon forgotten writer, decrying the singing tribe in man, compares them bitterly with the birds, whose brains, he more than hints, are atrophied to provide them with voices. This slander needs no refutation, although to be sure the most intelligent of the birds, the crow tribe, are not distinguished by the sweetness of their voices any more than parrots are. Nay, what the flower is to the plant, so is the song to the bird, a redundant and gratuitous gift. Only apparently so, say the biologists. In the case of flowers, the utilitarian end of attracting insects is plain enough, and so in like manner the song of the bird is merely a means to the end of attracting and fascinating its mate. The bird makes love by his song. We may grant all this to be sure, and still remain unconvinced that the teleological is a full and satisfying explanation. Logicians might ask, they would ask in vain, why only some birds fascinate by song, why only some plants blow flowers. Ostrich eggs are duly fertilized, although so far that creature has shown no inclination to attract its lover by concord of sweet sounds. And I have no doubt that the nightingale hen would have admired her lord and master just as much had his love song taken the form of the corn grape. The mystery is here that the birds' songs fascinate not only their mates, but also our poets. And so, in spite of the straight Darwinian, we fall back upon a fancy, the fancy that nature sometimes plays and frolics, that living cytoplasm loves to be alive, that it has a joy in sheer living which it loves to shout abroad for no ulterior reason, for no reason at all that this redundant exuberant activity it is that produces art in all its protean manifestations, and that the fine careless rapture of the blackbird, no less than the Athena of Phidias, is art, play, frolic, 
the joy of living. Both alike are created by life's surplusage of energy, life's overflowing stream. In all vital processes, when you come to think of it, our needs are not only met, they are exceeded. The gods are lavish. That is why the cosmos must seem such a puzzle to the utilitarian. He moves about in worlds unrealized. Then there is the odd fact to which I just alluded, that the song of birds and the beauty of flowers harmonize with our own sense of fitness and of joy. This indeed touches the depth of existence, for it is the equivalent in the emotional life of that enigma of the brain, that the human intellect is capable of bringing into harmony with its own modulation so much of the mystery of the universe. Here, to be sure, it is a strange chord of thought to be set vibrating by a lark, caroling unseen in the sky. And I can only, as apology for the digression, if digression it be, plead that no words of mine on the beauty of bird songs dare venture on the utterance beside the gorgeous praise of Keats, of Shelley, of Tennyson. End of section three.